Hi, I'm Jennifer Zollett. And I'm Larkin Bell. Welcome to our podcast, A Brighter Lens. back again probably we are this is our last episode of 2020 oh my gosh wow year it's been what a year also we've had so many amazing episodes in 2020 great interviews all really for zoom for the i know we've talked we've talked off mic but these conversations have been kind of a bright spot for us they really have Um, only the only way we've gotten to meet people really during this time yes meeting new people over zoom talking about films i mean exactly you know I'll take it. I will too. And yeah. um, this interview with uh, Tara Miele was was a was a special one because we actually saw her speak at Sundance 2020, so way back in January, and got to see her film Wander Darkly as part of the AFI Film Fest this year. That yes, yeah, yeah. Sadly, we didn't see it at Sundance, but we did hear her talk, and we were excited to see her film, um, and had our first virtual pandemic film festival experience with yeah. AFI. Uh, yeah. Shouts out exciting. to a smart TV that hooked us up with uh, <laughs> you know, the Eventive app that we could yep. then play uh, Wander Darkly on. That was an exciting experience for us. It, it really was. Yeah. It was um, kind of interesting doing a virtual film festival, but uh, you know, we made the most of it and I really enjoyed it it was fun to watch these films and think about it and um then awesome to be able to interview tara after the fact totally agree yeah and i feel like her film um is is a unique one like i feel like i haven't seen a film with the narrative structure that she employs um and and it works it definitely works the whole way through um and it's a really unique two-hander between um sienna miller and diego luna who were yeah. incredible in it they were amazing, like really, really exceptional acting. Um, yeah, it was, yeah. yeah, such a beautiful love story. I mean, mm-hmm. a lot of disturbing elements thrown in there to kind of make you be like, what's happening? But um, really beautiful and, and, a, and a cool story to kind of take in during this time. It was. And I think um, just it really did not shy away from any emotion any you know what we might consider like more just like a darker emotion or more intense emotion and I feel like I felt a lot of emotion watching the film but um I really appreciate that it didn't shy it really just dove into it in a way I haven't seen a film do before maybe definitely and I think um and what you'll hear in the interview Tara's experience of being in a car accident and being a parent really informed the film and it's cool to hear about this personal experience that then kind of was the seed of this whole other new story. And um, that was a fun kind of journey just to hear about her own life and then how she made this really incredible film from that. Yeah, agreed. Especially because everyone, you know, you and I are writing a script right now and everyone always says, you know, write what you know, but then it's sort of this like there's this line between writing exactly what you know and then taking an experience that you have and developing it into something that, you know, is a story. And 
is not exactly how it happened and kind of like, yeah, how do you, how does anybody do that? How do we find that? So it was nice to talk to her about how she did. Totally. And this might be a tangent, but, um, I remember when we heard her speak at this, it was like a Canada goose with like Bentonville film festival panel, you know, as they have those uh-huh. wonderful panels at Sundance. Um, I remember she had, so she had been in a car accident with her husband and I remember her like shouting at her husband who was there at Sundance um, and had been, you know, there with her whole experience making the film and um, just also seeing, you know, his pride on Instagram, like shouting on his wife, like with this film, it just like is so sweet. So I just wanted to like give a shout out to Tara's husband and like just all those like supportive, like partners and friends and people that kind of keep, keep us going on the creative process. I just thought that was really sweet. And um, I don't know, we all need a little bit of that, that love and, and kindness during the holidays. So there we are. Yeah, totally. Also just takes a village to make anything, to make a film, to write a script, any of these things. Yeah, totally. So um, I don't know, everyone watch Wonder Darkly if you can. Um, It's available to um, rent or buy on VOD. And it's definitely worth, worth a watch. So yeah. And enjoy our interview with Tara. Well, then we'll just get started. If you could introduce yourself and just tell our listeners a little bit about your film, Wander Darkly. Sure. Uh, my name is Tara Mealy. I'm the writer director of a film called Wander Darkly. It stars Sienna Miller and Diego Luna. And, um, it follows a couple after a tragic accident, uh, trying to, sort of sort through their relationship, make sense of, of where their relationship went wrong in order to face their uncertain future. Awesome. So we actually heard you speak back in January at Sundance at a panel, and you mentioned that the genesis for the film came from a personal experience, which we were intrigued to hear. Could you tell us how you took that experience and then used it as inspiration to create the story that, that we see in Wander Darkly? Yeah, so um, my husband and I did survive a, a head-on collision about seven years ago, and there was a few things that happened in that experience that really stuck with me. One was I blacked out when the car crash originally happened, and um, afterwards, like I don't remember feeling it or anything, but afterwards I was saying, I can't see, I can't see, um, and, and then I was like mad that he wasn't responding to me, and so I was like, I can't see, you know, and I was like mad at him. Um, which is insane because then he kind of eked out, I can't breathe. And there was sort of like uh, such a strange uh, dissonance between like, there was something about the sense that something could have happened to me or I had been disembodied in some like old Irish folktale way that my mom had sung about when I was a kid. But but, like the idea that something had happened to him just hadn't, it, it hadn't even crossed my mind. Like that was an impossibility. So there was that little piece of it. And then also, you know, we were young parents at the time. Our daughters were only six months and four at the time. So there was something about my mortality that struck me in a really uh, hard way, being a mom of two young kids and how much they needed me. Uh, And the idea of leaving them was so frightening. And then like, uh, you know, a day or so after the accident, I was on the couch, I was really concussed. And I had that moment uh, where Adrian in the movie calls to her baby and the baby ignores her because she's a baby. But for me in that moment, it was like so clear and so real that I had died and that I was just witnessing what came after and I would not raise my kids. It was so deeply true. Um, And then it lasted a half a second, right? And so so then coming out of that, it was like Thanksgiving, we're with my parents and I'm feeling so incredibly grateful for these messy, delicate lives. Everybody's fighting and you know it's crying and mayhem. And I was just so like glad to be there. 
So that was the feeling that I really wanted to share. And then I really became interested in um, that, that concussed state and how it protected my, me in some ways, right? Like how a concussion messes with your head. And I also was really interested. I had lost some people in my life around that time. And I was very interested in the psychosis of grief and sort of uh, how we allow that, that it's just this time that you have to like be crazy for a little while after you've lost someone close to you. And I'd always wanted to tell a love story about the longevity of a relationship and the fact that we never plateau, that we're always peaks and valleys. Um, and I was also sort of interested in the loss of love and how it parallels with the loss of life you know, like the death of a relationship and the death of, of somebody. So there were all these things swimming around me. And then one morning at three in the morning, I like woke up hot with it. And I was like, oh, I know what I want to do with it. Um, and then it kind of spun out from there. Wow. That's, wow. So, that's so incredible. All those different yeah. layers coming together, but I can totally see all those layers yeah. in the film. They all came through. I just, I can't even imagine how you just began the process of writing it and then kind of grappling with all those emotions as you're writing as well and kind of balancing that must have been hard. Yeah, for sure. Um, I like to think of writing as like an accordion. So like I start really small and I just, I want to know the whole movie, but in a really basic way. So like, I want to know three sentences. What is it? And then I start sort of saying it to people to see what they, that to kind of gauge a reaction. Um, and when I started just sharing this with like friends, people would go, Oh, and I was like, oh, that's good. Okay. So like the idea of the song works, you know, like the, the notes work. And then I wrote like a one page just for myself. And then it turned into like a 12 page treatment. Um, and I never showed that to anybody. It didn't feel like something that anybody could understand. <laughs> it was like, there was just so much that had to be done in the execution of it. And so um, I wrote it before, you know, I had, I had shared the idea with Lynette Howell who encouraged me to write it, but nobody ever read the treatment. And so I just went to page and, and, sort of explored it. But yeah, definitely it was a very emotional thing to write. Um, a friend of mine, a theater friend was like, change your socks. So when you're done, change your socks and be you again. And so I found that really helpful actually uh, to kind of wash that off, you know, but. Oh, I love that. It really does have such a unique narrative structure that keeps the viewer engaged and just kind of reveals the psyche of these characters as we're watching. Was that always your intention when writing the film? And how did it evolve or change from script to production? Yeah, it was always my intention that Mateo would want to, you know, tell her their story uh, in order to make sense of things for her. And that he would kind of control the narrative of the first half of act two. And that at some point in the midpoint, she was going to be like, okay, like enough. Cause I actually don't feel like I can trust you. And I have my own version of things. And that she would sort of take control at that point. But that because her head wasn't sort of as stable that her memories, like they slip through many, many memories. It sort of gets a little bit less in control. So I always knew like that, that structure was going to happen. And I spent a lot of time before I got to script kind of like, taking note cards and moving things around and making sure I knew like what went where. And for me, there was like an emotional through line more than there was like a, a time specific through line. I think that's how we live. You know, I'm constantly reflecting on the past and projecting into the future. And like how many times we revisit one moment in our life that happened years ago. I mean, like we can make one moment last a lifetime, right. And let a million other moments go. So I was really interested in that sort of spiralness, you know, Diego has, on his arm, we gave him the Fibonacci spiral, which is the symbol of the connective ratio of all things, right? Your forearm to your arm, the spiral of a wave, a snail shell. I mean, it's ev it's in everything, right? And I think time really unfolds more in that way 
than it does as a, as a straight line. So I was sort of interested in all of this going into it. I, I am amazed how you kept track of all, all the memories, like just the, the shifting of time was so intriguing to watch. And then just thinking about writing that kind of blew my mind. Right. Yeah. It was, um, very intuitive in the process of it, but that like, once I actually got writing, I really had to like, let go and make it an emotional experience and stay with her and her state. But certainly moving into production, um, I created a timeline, like an in-order timeline of the events just to make sure that there were no like paradoxes that I had missed because I'd never done that. Um, And there was a lot of time spent with the AD and the producers. We would always have extra eyes just to make sure there wasn't something that we were missing, you know, with continuity and with um, with the run of things, so many conversations really, truly with actors. Um, they did the gymnastics here. They were like Olympians. They were doing hairpin turns and, um, trusted me beyond what anybody should ever trust. It was so unknown (laughs) and they were so brave. Yeah. The film really rests on obviously their relationship and, um, which honestly sounds like a really cool acting challenge, um, for that, for Sienna Miller and Diego Luna. And we were curious, like, what was your rehearsal process like with them and how did you approach working with them in like such an intimate film? Yeah. So I'll be honest, you know, like I've only just recently started saying this, but it was quite intimidating, right? Like sitting down with Sienna and Diego, they're, they're incredibly talented, fiercely intelligent, both of them and like gorgeous. And I think it's an occupational hazard that those things combined really intimidate me. Um, but I think it's important to say it. <laughs> Other people should know that it's okay. So, you know, we did have a week of rehearsal and um, mostly it was really about sharing our own, like, you know, I the script is so personal for me. So then it was sort of an opportunity for them to share with me their own personal experiences and their how they relate to the script. Um, I mean, I feel like Diego has said this before, but it was like he was like reading his son's life, like in the script. It was like awfully personal for him and Sienna as well. There were just things that really resonated for both of them. So we all like laid our hearts out on the table. And then also we spent a lot of time breaking down the scene work and saying, okay, where are you in the past? Where are you in the present? And to be honest, there's so much unique material in the script. One of the challenges was trying to anticipate what might bump somebody or what might not translate the way that I have it in my head um, because there was quite a few ways to interpret it. So there was just so many conversations. I also, it was really important for me that, you know, we had this inter-ethnic couple living in a certain place in LA on the East side. It was important to me that their house felt real for who the couple was. So we spent a lot of time like talking to art department and um, discussing like where you know, where in Mexico this character was from originally and what kind of textiles would they have? And I mean, the pictures I have of our department of like the books on the shelves are specific mm-hmm. to the characters. Katie Byron, our production designer was incredible. Um, so yeah, we spent just like a lot of time together. And I think all of that, like letting them build this couple as their own, letting them find signifiers, you know, like they did this thing where they put their foreheads together and that was like their thing. And they do it a few times in the film. It was like, just these tiny details that I think take it off the page and elevate it in such a true way. And thank God our producers allowed us that time, you know. Um, Shifting a little bit. So when we heard you speak at Sundance, you said this quote that we wrote down and it just really resonated with us and struck us. So you said, often when hiring, men are judged on their potential and women are judged on their resumes. We were wondering if you could just elaborate on that a little bit, talk about how you experienced that with making this film and financing is such a big obstacle for filmmakers and if that was part of this and how financing worked for your film. Yeah, so um, look, I think 
I certainly stand by that. I have said that a lot. I think that, um, you know, you can look at it on a directorial level when women come out of Sundance and and they don't get like maybe the big studio tentpole movie that men do when they come out of Sundance and somebody looks at a guy and goes, oh, I see myself in him. He's got potential. I'm going to give him a shot. I do think it's changing. Um, I think the more we talk about it, the more it will change. But the truth is, is if you aren't given the opportunity to do anything you haven't already proven yourself to do that you can do, then you're then that's a ceiling, right? Then there's like a, a really low ceiling. Um, I think the reason why so many women succeed in documentary is because there's so much, um, it, it's, it's so like self-driven, right? Like you can go and like make half the documentary before you actually need the money to finish the documentary. And so you're like sort of already in the ocean uh, without the permission. Like there's not as much of a gatekeeper in that situation. So, so yeah, I definitely feel like when hiring crew, um, it is really important to me for uh, when I look at women and people of color that I look at what they've done and I, and I talk to them about the next steps and I like imagine what they're ready for, you know, and with white men, I think that that's always the case that people are always sort of projecting on them what they can do, which is, oh, they can do anything. <laughs> so I think it's an incredibly important for women and people of color that we look and, and the LGBTQ community as well, that we look at those people in the same way. Um, the funny thing is, is on set, I think we were about 50, 50 men to women ratio. Um, which just shows like how hard it is to like, you know, people think you're like somehow having like reverse sexism or reverse racism. And it's just not real. That's not a real thing. So um, in terms of financing the film, um, Shivani Rawat and Shivhan's pictures um, were our sole financier. Um, I think she's an incredible producer and supporter of women. And she wholeheartedly believed in this project and understood the importance of shooting it in Los Angeles. She was a total enabler for my vision along with our producers, Monica Levinson and Sam Hausman and Lynette Hal-Taylor. They really never tried to like, you know, uh, put, put their sense of finance ahead of what the uniqueness and the individuality and the specialness of the film was gonna be. And, you know, all very much believed if you try to make a movie for everybody, you will make a movie for nobody. And I do think the space of, you know, having like a Sundance level film is so competitive. You know, you're with 16 other films just that month that are all in competition and how many are going to sell for a bazillion dollars? How many are going to land a theatrical deal? How many are going to resonate? You know, it's, it's, a, it's really a testament. And not only that you've competed with how many thousands of films to even get to that point. Right. So you might as well go for it. You might as well go big and go brave and make mistakes and, and risk to fail rather than making something that nobody really wanted to make in the first place. I think they, they really understood that. But certainly Lynette and I have tried to work together for a long time and it was not possible to get a female director financed and that's changed. I mean, just night and day for me, for my family, for my whole life changed. Well, digging into the Sundance experience, we kind of want to hear about, yeah, what that experience is like having your your film premiere there. And then also like waiting all these many months, you know, during a global pandemic to have the film now be released. I'm wondering if you could kind of talk us through that whole process. Yeah, it's so funny because in the lead up to Sundance, I was I was so excited to get in, first of all. I mean, giddy and thrilled. And it took me 20 years, you know, from slam dance, I was a short filmmaker to get down the hill from Treasure Mountain Inn to the Egyptian. So thrilled to have been there. It was very wonderful to have time with my cast and crew. It was really, truly wonderful to have like the one-on-one -on -one reactions from audiences, from like strangers sharing these very deeply personal stories with me. I found that 
why I'm a filmmaker and I found it so beautiful and so profound. And I still am like carrying that with me. It definitely was a lot of pressure. There was like a lot of, it felt very high stakes. Um, it felt more competitive than I thought it would feel. Like I've never felt that it like as a small short filmmaker at South by or at slam dance. I just never was in the like, will we sell it? What's the, you know, I've just never been in that zone. And that's not my favorite place to be like sort of getting graded by critics and feeling like I have to perform in some way like that. But we had this beautiful premiere and a standing ovation. And, and I, I thought CNN and Diego deserved that. And I was so happy that they got to go and experience that. Um, and then, and then what, and then the pandemic, um, I, here's what I'll say. It was so, it was so big, right? Like the pandemic happening in the spring, I'm a mom. I have two young children who are in, were, one was graduating fifth grade and missed out on all of her fifth grade graduation stuff. And was very devastated about that. One is in uh, second grade now. Um, so it felt like certainly unfortunate that we weren't coming out and having this big theatrical run, like right on the tail of Sundance, like we had thought, but it just felt like not a big deal in the grand scheme of things in some way. It just didn't feel like the what. It didn't feel like the thing that actually mattered in the moment. Um, and I will say now, it's really glorious to be able to share it with the world. Like that's, it's really nice. I feel like it's coming at a really nice moment. I hope it gives people a real sense of the resilience of the human spirit and a moment of catharsis from our shared grief that we've been all stuck in this weird surreal quarantined purgatory thing very similar to adrian and um the the best part of sundance was he, like watching people connect like strangers hugging in the theater or like um people like oh god i left this movie i had to call my wife and apologize for every dumb thing i ever did or a woman told me you know my father died recently and and this film i walked around park city for two hours and and then i just realized oh, i wanted to live and you're like, how do you like top that? So I hope that that is sort of what what continues to happen for audiences. And and you know, I think Lionsgate's been a really good partner, and and that I hope it gets to lots of people. Wow, um, I just was struck by what you said about this 20 year journey you've had from you know your your short premiering at Slamdance to you know then your feature premiering at Sundance, which you know can be the dream for many people. Um, and I feel like I'm starting out on that journey. Like, how did you, how do you keep going? Like what inspires you to, to get to this point? Like, that's a long time. That's yeah, amazing. You have to be like super deluded. Cool, cool, cool. You do, you have to think like, oh, I have something essential and uh, like, this is what I'm born to do. And then also like, you know, there were so many times where I had like a foot out the door and where I was like to my husband who had been to with this whole time, we've been together a really long time. I would be like, you know, I reserve the right to quit. I reserve the right to join the Peace Corps and do something more meaningful with my life than developing scripts that are never going to get made with a bunch of executives that do not care what I have to say. Um, and he'd always be like, no, but you're a filmmaker. And I'd be like, you know, so lots of ups and downs. Um, certainly there was a time when I was pregnant with my first daughter. Uh, I, I had a writing partner. We had sold something, but the writer's strike had happened. This really dates me. It was like, you know, 15 years ago or whatever. No, how old is she? She's 11. So it was 11 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, she's the only way I know where, <laughs> by the way. Um, so 
Yeah, but I, I like broke up with my writing partner. I left my agent. I left my manager. We just could not sell anything. I was losing my benefits. And I was like, this is like not me. Like, I just, I'm not going to sit here and not get anything done. I can't wait for someone else's permission. So I really was going to join the Peace Corps. That lasted four days. And <laughs> I, I went to therapy. I did some yoga. And then I got an email from a friend of a friend who had a script or who was like, I've got $100,000, a house on Lake Michigan. And I'm looking for a script and a director. And I was like, oh, shit, I have to go do this. If I don't do it before the baby comes, it's never going to happen. And so I did. I went and I made a movie with that producer. And that was like my first feature. That was so that was 11 years ago. And I mean, the difference between I mean, my life has changed so dramatically or I should say, yeah, my life because now I'm a mommy, too. Right. So but my career changed so dramatically from like that moment. It like got me lifetime movies back to back. And I did all those CBS programs and now I'm directing TV. And then I wrote my way out of all that with Wander Darkly. And I think it's just like a series of right turns. And you just are like relentless, man. You just got to be relentless. Relentless and deluded. I like it. <laughs> Relentless and deluded. A life story by Tara Mealy. <laughs> a memoir title. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Well, Jennifer, do you have anything else? No, I guess we'll just end with our, we end every interview with our lightning round. We call it three, two, one action. So you can answer in a word or a phrase, whatever comes to Ooh. mind. All right, let's do it. Okay. Uh, we'll start with three, your favorite or most influential film. Most influential film. Oh, God. You know, I'll say in relation to this movie, I feel like the first female filmmaker I ever saw was uh, Maya Darren's Meshes of the Afternoon, which is really obscure, but everybody should see it because she is a weirdo and a wonderful artist. And she does all sorts of time jumping and world jumping. And that definitely was obviously a kernel of me somewhere. Two, dream person you want to work with. Oh, let's say the Obamas. <laughs> uh, one, best advice you've received. Um, oh, uh, Bruce Paltrow, uh, Gwyneth's dad was, you know, big writer producer and he was a mentor of mine. And he told me early on, get your ass in the chair and get the pages out. And action. Where can people follow you on social media? Um, I am on Instagram. I am very lazy on Twitter and very non on Twitter, but I'm there somewhere and on Facebook, I guess I'm sort of on. Awesome. Cool. Wow. It was such a delight to chat with you. Thank you. Me too. This is so cool. I'm really excited that you guys do this. It's rad. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Okay. Thank you. Have a good rest of your day. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye. You can find us at abrighterlens.com and at abrighterlens on Instagram and Twitter. You can email us at abrighterlens at gmail.com. You can download the show wherever you listen to podcasts and on Apple Podcasts, where we'd love it if you left us a review. Our theme song was composed by Jesse Nelson. Our logos were designed by Meg Cafferty. Our associate producer is Elise Welch. A Brighter Lens was created by Jennifer Zollett and Larkin Bell. 